Here at Unaborted, we keep you informed and educated on what's happening around the country in the fight over abortion, unpacking pro-abortion ideas and translating them into reality. However, I wanted to hit pause today and go back to the basics. I want you to master the pro-life position so you can easily navigate pro-abortion waters with confidence. The partisans of abortion love to distract pro-lifers like yourself from the main thing because they can't engage on the main thing. So today we're gonna help you keep the main thing the main thing. You can be a pro-life apologist. Buckle up, here we go. Welcome to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. Thanks for tuning in today. Hey, if this show has been helpful to you and this is a fun community and a fun show for you to tune into, just to remain educated on what's happening in the country over the most important battle, the battle of the most fundamental right, the right to life, then give us a rating and review. Let us know what you think and tell a friend. Hey, big announcement just to remind you, we told you on the show last week. As of last week, I took my pro-life show, Unaborted, to the radio. We will be airing on K-Praise, which is in San Diego County, or KPRZ on Sunday evenings from 6 to 6.30 p.m. You can tune in if you're in the San Diego County or maybe South Orange County area on FM 106.1. That's FM 106.1 or AM 1210. I believe you can also listen live online at kprz.com. So pray for that new endeavor that we would reach more people with these pro-life ideas, equipping them to defend life, engaging with us here for the full show on the Unaborted podcast so we can create the next generation and invest in the next generation to be the pro-life generation and abolish abortion. So you can be a pro-life apologist. And today we're going to show you exactly how. I want to go back to basics and to first principles of what the pro-life position is and how you can stay in the driver's seat of the conversation by keeping the main thing the main thing. And this is important because the partisans of abortion are experts at changing the subject, aren't they? (laughs) And, And shifting the debate to questions that are of no significant consequence. Questions related to the abortion issue, but they're not the main question. And you probably know how frustrating this is, don't you? How many of you have ever been in an argument with someone and you knew you were winning and they knew you were winning and everyone listening knew you were winning and then that person suddenly changed the subject and started talking about something else, either either somehow that they perceive you're a hypocrite or uh, by talking about something else. Or how many of you have been in an argument and you were losing and you changed the subject? If you're married or if you're in a romantic relationship, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. This is exactly what pro-abortion advocates do when a pro-lifer such as yourself explains why they're pro-life. They simply change the subject. We live in a culture that takes the main thing and makes it not the main thing. They hurl insults, accusations, lies, and objections that change the subject. Why? Because they can't engage in any meaningful way on the main thing. We need to become what Scott Klusendorf, the president of our organization, calls the essential pro-lifer, keeping the essential message centered in the debate and conversations over abortion. We need to keep the main thing the main thing. And the Bible is very clear about what the main thing is, isn't it? From the very beginning of the human story, from Genesis 1, we learn that human beings are made in God's image. They bear what is called the imago Dei. The same God who was there before the beginning of all things, who breathed out the Milky Way, who laughed animals into existence, who dropped oceans, breathed life into you at the moment of conception and said that you were more valuable than anything else he had made. 
And therefore, he gave you dominance and dominion over the creation he had made to be stewards of. This is the idea of the Imago Dei. And so because human beings are created in the image of God, they bear intrinsic value, value that cannot be separated from their human nature. It is intrinsic to being a human being to have objective value. We're not valuable because of what we can do functionally or any of our characteristics or how we perform. We are valuable simply because we are human beings. Well, the next main thing that the Bible teaches is that because we bear God's image and have this intrinsic value, the shedding of innocent blood is strictly forbidden. The Bible is very clear in its uh, it's forbidding of the shedding of innocent blood. You see this in Exodus 23, uh, Proverbs 6, for example, and Matthew 5. So from those two premises, there is only one question left to ask, which is, are the unborn human? If human beings are created in the image of God and have intrinsic dignity, value, and worth, and so therefore it's always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings, then are the unborn human. But instead of answering that one question, the culture and the partisans of abortion immediately change the subject because they can't engage on the main thing. Before we get to how pro-abortion advocates will change the subject, let's define our terms. What is the pro-life apologetic? What's the pro-life case? In short, what is our argument? What do pro-life people believe? Because this is what I want you to master so that you can keep the main thing the main thing. Before we get to the essential pro-life case, we're offering a new feature here at Unaborted. Starting soon, we'll be taking your questions on the show, anything related to abortion, politics, the culture, the church, faith, the next generation. We want to hear from you. We want to hear what you want me to cover on this show. So whatever questions or comments you have, you can send those to unaborted at sethgruber.com. That's unaborted at sethgruber.com. And we'll be right back with the essential pro-life case. Welcome back to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. So listen, this is the essential pro-life case. This is so important. This is what I want you to get. This is your replay episode, okay? This is your your go-to replay episode to develop a bulletproof pro-life ethic. Why? Because the partisans of abortion will be relentless in their attacks against pro-lifers and they will change the subject and try to shift the grounds of the debate to a ground that they feel more confident engaging on. We can't let them do that. We have to keep the main thing the main thing. And here's how we do that. We offer the essential pro-life case. Three words for you over and over again. Syllogism, syllogism, syllogism. What's a syllogism? It's a form of reasoned argument that lays out your basic premises, right? And if the premises are true and valid, then the conclusion naturally follows. We offer the basic pro-life argument in the form of a syllogism to clarify our thinking, right? And to avoid uh, muddled thinking. Here is the pro-life syllogism in two premises with a basic conclusion. We've gone through this on the show before, but this is your go-to forever eternal replay episode to develop that bulletproof pro-life ethic. Here it is. Premise one, it is always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings without proper justification. And guess what? Everyone agrees with that one. You'd be hard pressed to find a pro-abortion advocate who goes, actually, I think it is okay to intentionally kill innocent humans without any form of justification. Okay, so premise one, usually you're not going to get any pushback. Premise two, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being without proper justification. Conclusion, therefore, abortion is morally wrong. Therefore, abortion is always wrong. Now, Premise two is where people are going to take issue with what you're saying, of course, right? They're going to disagree that the the unborn is human. 
they're going to disagree that abortion intentionally kills, and they're going to disagree that there's no proper justification for abortion. So premise one, we can all agree. Premise two is where the disagreement happens in the abortion debate, okay? I want to clarify all of our terms and ideas so as you begin to discuss the issue of abortion, this will function a little bit as an intellectual or mental scaffolding for your mind to navigate pro-abortion waters confidently, okay? So what are the three questions we have to ask and answer to adequately defend premise two? That abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being without proper justification. Well, it's apparent to me that there are three questions we need to answer. Is the unborn a human being? Does abortion intentionally kill? And is abortion ever justified? Right? Because I'm saying abortion always intentionally kills an innocent human being without proper justification. So let's go through each of those three questions. Let me give you the bulletproof defense of those three questions. And if we're true and correct and valid in our defense, then premise two has to be right. And if premise two is right, then the conclusion follows, which is therefore abortion is always wrong. So is the unborn a human being? Well, we've known for a long time that they are. The science of embryology has been clear for decades. When Roe versus Wade was decided that legalized abortion in America through all nine months of pregnancy and its companion legal case, Doe versus Bolton, In 1973, we knew what the science of embryology teaches. But if you read the legal decision, Justice Blackmun, who authored the decision, basically said when uh, scientists and uh, theologians and, uh, you know, philosophers can't agree on when human life begins, it is beyond the purview of this court to answer that question. So he appealed to the fact that people disagreed on whether human life began at conception as his justification for not taking a position on it at all. But a lack of consensus is not a lack of truth. We know that human life begins at the moment of conception. According to the science of embryology, the unborn child from the earliest stages of development, from the moment of conception, is a distinct, living, and whole human being. Okay, really quick, what do those terms mean? Distinct means separate, unique, not part of the mother's body. That's why I say that the body in her body is not her body. The unborn child is a distinct, unique human being who has never come into existence before and will never come into existence again. How do we know this? They can have a blood type different than the mother, right? They certainly have a unique, separate DNA from the mother. They could be a different gender from the mother, which becomes a very, very strange way to reconcile your pro-choice position if you say that it's the mother's body, her body, her choice. Well, we know that pregnant women don't have penises when they're pregnant with unborn males. So clearly the unborn child is not part of the mother's body. It's distinct. It's living because the unborn child meets all of the requirements for a living thing that we learned in high school biology. And the unborn child is developing itself from within. So it's not like a Corvette. It's not like a car that is, a, is put together on an assembly line and that we call a car when the last piece goes on. Human development is not like that. Human development begins at the moment of conception. Sperm and egg meet, sperm and egg die, and a new human being comes into existence. It's a living human being. And the unborn child is a whole human being, okay? Distinct, living, and whole. Those are your science terms to defend the proposition human life begins at the moment of conception. Distinct, living, and whole. The unborn child is a whole human being because they have everything they need from the moment of conception to realize their full growth and development as a participating member of the human species. What do I mean by that? I mean that the unborn child is not like a skin cell. They're not like a somatic cell. So if I scratch my palm, I'm scratching off thousands of somatic skin cells. Nobody thinks that I just committed mass homicide. (laughs) Why? Because we recognize that those cells are parts of holes. What's the hole? 
I'm the whole. I'm the whole entity. I'm the whole human being. Those skin cells might have my DNA in them, but nobody thinks that those are whole human beings with a coordinated human system, do we? So the unborn child is not like a skin cell. It's not just like a cell that has human DNA, but that's what the pro-abortion movement says, right? It's just a clump of cells. No, no, it's a coordinated human being that is distinct from the mother, is living, and it's whole because it actively creates and and develops itself from within. There is no outside builder. It isn't like an, an assembly line. It develops itself and it has everything it needs to realize its full level of development. We all find ourselves on a different tick mark on the continuum of human development. Infants are not as developed as toddlers. Toddlers are not as developed as teenagers. Teenagers are not as developed as their parents. So yes, the unborn child is not as developed as an infant or a toddler, but that doesn't mean that they're not a whole human being. Does that make sense? That's what the science of embryology teaches, distinct, living, and whole. I could quote you dozens of embryology textbooks, but here's one professor of genetics, Dr. Jeremy Leguin at the University of Descartes, who said after fertilization has taken place, place, a new human being has come into being. He says it is no longer a matter of taste or opinion, meaning it's not subjective, meaning you going around screaming and yelling her body, her choice is stupid and means nothing. It's not a matter of taste or opinion. It is plain experimental evidence. Each individual has a very neat beginning at conception. Okay. So is the unborn human being? Yes. And if you care about objectivity and truth, you obviously have to say yes. Okay. Question two, does abortion intentionally kill? Remember premise two, Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being without proper justification. It's a human being. Does abortion intentionally kill? Yes, it does intentionally kill because abortions are not accidental, are they? Abortions are not like miscarriages. But the abortion, you know, the abortion partisans will talk about abortions as if they're morally equivalent to miscarriages, uh, which is, I mean, a a lack of logic if there ever was one, (laughs) a lack of common sense reasoning if there ever was one. Anyone regardless of whether they've experienced a miscarriage or not, knows that miscarriages are what? Oh yeah, accidental, accidental. That's wrapped up in the definition of miscarriage. Nobody intended it, nobody made it happen. It happened spontaneously. So it's not a spontaneous abortion, it's a miscarriage. Abortions are not accidental because you don't accidentally find yourself in the abortion clinic. You have to schedule the appointment. And if your baby's too developed, oftentimes you have to have your cervix forcibly dilated. My goodness, so that the suction instrument or the forceps fit up your birth canal to grasp the limbs of your child and rip them off. Okay, I'm speaking very realistically and brutally. Why? I want to make the point that abortion is intentional. Obviously, abortion is intentional. Not because I say so, but because the partisans of abortion say so. How about Warren Hearn? Ever heard of Warren Hearn? He wrote the textbook Abortion Practice. He's an abortionist. He's killed he's killed thousands of children. And he wrote the leading textbook, Training Future uh, Doctors. Let's call them Doctors of Death, How to Perform Abortions. It's the leading medical textbook on abortion procedures. Here's what he said in abortion practice. We have reached a point in this particular technology where there is no possibility of denial of an act of a destruction by the operator. It is before one's eyes. The sensations of dismemberment flow through the forceps like an electric current. That's the one of the leading abortionists and abortion instructors. And that was from 1978. He was saying that that abortion was clearly intentional. Camille Paglia, a pro-choice academic and social critic and professor at the University of Arts in Philadelphia, wrote a 2008 Salon.com article where she said this. Hence, I have always frankly admitted that abortion is murder, the extermination of the powerless by the powerful. 
Liberals, for the most part, have shrunk from facing the ethical consequences of their embrace of abortion, which results in the annihilation of concrete individuals and not just clumps of insensate tissue. The partisans of abortion say abortion is an intentional act of killing of the child in the womb. So yes, the unborn is a human being. Yes, abortion intentionally kills. Last question. Is abortion ever justified? Rewind. Premise two, right? Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being without proper justification. Is abortion ever justified? And this will be the moral playing field, okay, where the partisans of abortion will engage on most actively, most viciously. Because they really don't care about the biology conversation. Really, most of them know that it's a human being. They don't care about that, right? They know it intentionally kills human beings. They don't care about that. They want to say that it's not a person and, and that it's justified to kill little humans in the womb. This is the big part, okay? If you want to know the pro-life case and you want to defend that simple syllogism to defend your pro-life beliefs, here's the one you need to be the most firm on. Is abortion ever justified? I'm going to argue that abortion is never justified medically and it's never justified morally. However, those will be the two ways that the partisans of abortion argue that abortion is justified. It's it's justified morally because it's her body, her choice, and it's justified medically. What do we mean by when we ask the question, is abortion justified medically? We're asking whether abortion ever needs to be performed to save the life of the mother, right, for medical medical reasons. This is never permissible or justified because you can either – induce early labor and deliver the child early, or you can perform a cesarean section, a C-section. If the pregnancy and the presence of the child in the womb is what is causing the medical health issues for the mother, such that if they continue, she might die, then guess what? You don't have to perform an abortion to, to end pregnancy and therefore rid the woman of the pregnancy risk to her life. Question, what's another way to end pregnancy? Oh, yeah, childbirth, delivering the baby. (laughs) So the baby's no longer in the womb, so there's no pregnancy risk to the mother's life. Now, obviously, as you're probably thinking, well, Seth, what if the baby is not developed enough to survive outside the womb? Correct. Sadly, unfortunately, if you have to deliver the child early because mom will die if you don't, then the baby is likely to not survive. But do you see the moral difference between that and intentionally killing the child in the womb with forceps? Of course you do. And this is the important difference um, in intent, right? We do not intend the death of the child when we deliver them early to save mom's life. What do we intend? To save the life of the mother. So the death of the child is a foreseen but unintended consequence. We don't intend the death of the child. But if we do nothing, how many lives do we lose? Both. We lose the lives of the mother and the child. And this is certainly true in the case of ectopic pregnancies, where the child implants in the fallopian tube and begins to grow. As the baby begins to grow, the fallopian tube expands. Left untreated, the fallopian tube bursts. Mom and baby die. That is one of the only circumstances left, by the way, thank God, where we know beforehand we can't save both mother and child. But removing the baby from the fallopian tube in that case is not an abortion. It's called a salpingectomy or a salpingostomy. You're removing the child to save mom's life. You're not intentionally killing the child. Do you see the difference there morally? Because obviously morals do overlap in medical decision making. So abortion is never justified medically because you don't have to perform an abortion to save the life of the mother. You can treat the underlying causes of the mother and either induce early labor or perform a cesarean section. And as medical advancements increase, right, then we will be able to save more of these babies at earlier stages that we have to deliver early to save mom's life. That's good news. 
right? Last week, we talked about baby Jamarius, who's now the youngest surviving micropremie, born at 21 weeks and zero days, who is going home healthy as of the last couple of weeks. A Dublin declaration signed by over 1,000 OBGYNs, nurses, midwives, doctors, medical professionals, and neonatologists have all signed the petition saying and agreeing to the statement that abortion is never medically justified or necessary to save mom's life, okay? So is abortion ever justified? Medically, no. Is abortion ever justified morally? Obviously, I'm gonna say no, but this will be the number one most heated debate with your pro-choice friends. They'll say, it's justified. It's the mother's moral and legal right, right? You hear that? It's her moral and legal right. It's her constitutional right. (laughs) Well, that's to assume that it's also a moral right because nobody has a right to do a wrong. Nobody has a right to act in such a way that harms other individuals without proper justification. So how do pro-choicers attempt to argue that abortion is morally justified? Well, here's their playbook, right? Here's their move. They're going to argue, by the way, uh, just like racists did, and the Democratic Party of basically its whole existence, that there were such things as human non-persons. That's their play, that the unborn child is an example of a human non-person. They're going to argue that only persons have rights and the unborn is not a person. Why? Because they're different from us in so many ways. They don't function like the rest of us do. That's their argument, okay? That's it right there in a nutshell. The unborn is not a person. Only persons have rights. And come on, I mean, isn't it obvious? They look so different than us. They can't survive on their own. And they don't function like the rest of us do as born people who can enjoy sexual freedom by murdering our offspring. So next question, what differences do the pro-abortion movement use to argue that the unborn is not a person? If they're saying the unborn is so different from us, come on, they're not persons. Why not? Well, their answer to the question, why not, is that the unborn child is smaller, they're less developed, so they don't have certain functions that come along with the level of development. They're located somewhere else, her body, her choice, as long as you're in the womb, right? As long as you're in the womb, we can kill you, environment and dependency. So size, level of development, environment and dependency. As long as the child's dependent on the mother, then it's not a person, we can kill it. Ironically, even when the child can survive outside the womb and not be dependent on the mother, pro-choicers usually still support abortion, even though the child is not dependent on the mother and can live apart from the dependency on their mother. So those are the arguments. Now, clearly, none of these make abortion morally justified because if they did, they would in turn justify the slaughter of born people who are smaller, less developed, located elsewhere and more dependent. So let me just fly through those really quick because if you've listened to my lectures before, you'll know this. The unborn child is smaller than the newborn child, but the newborn child is smaller than the toddler and the toddler is smaller than the teenager and the teenager is smaller than their parents, unless they're a massive teenager, of course. So men are generally larger than women. Does that mean that men can mistreat women and say, I'm bigger than you? No, of course not, right? So our value is not based on our size, it's based on what? Our human nature. And when did that human nature begin? The moment of conception. So if it's wrong to kill toddlers because they're smaller than you, it's equally wrong to kill unborn children simply because they're smaller than us. What about level of development? Yes, the unborn child is less developed than the newborn child, but newborn children are less developed than toddlers, and toddlers are less developed than teenagers, Your parents are more developed than you and your children are less developed than you. But nobody thinks it's okay to kill your children or to kill any child you happen to come across and who is an inconvenience to you simply because they're less developed. So level of development is not a good standard for humanity or for human rights. What about environment or location? Yes, it's true. The unborn child is located in the womb six inches away. 
Unfortunately, that womb, that environment, that location has become the most dangerous place for a human being to find themselves in America. You're more likely of being murdered in a womb than being murdered in any dangerous city, slum, or crime-ridden area. The womb is the most dangerous place for a human being to be regardless of their skin color because we kill a million babies a year in America through abortion. But where one is has no bearing on who one is. And we talked about this last week, right? I told you about baby Jamarius, born at 21 weeks and zero days. What pro-abortion advocate would say, slaughter baby Jamarius after he's born in the NICU on a breathing tube as his parents are praying that he will live? Well, what's the difference between baby Jamarius at 21 weeks and baby Jamarius at 28 weeks had he not been born early? Location, environment. Clearly, our human rights are not based on our location. Lastly, dependency. Yes, it's true. The unborn child is dependent on the mother. We all know that. Now, thankfully, medical advancements are making it such that we can make unborn children not dependent on their mother at earlier and earlier stages. Baby Jamarius is evidence of that. We're saving micropremies now at 21 weeks. But is our human rights ready and our right to life dependent on whether or not we're dependent on someone else? Of course not. If you only have a right to life that should be objectively respected by others, if you can survive independently, then what about those who are dependent on heart pacemakers, kidney machines, insulin for diabetics, right? And life support. Can we kill all of them? How about infants? What happens if you leave an uh, eight-month-old in their crib and do nothing? They die because they're still dependent. So you're not valuable because of your dependency on someone or something else. You're valuable because of your human nature, which began at the moment of conception. So we've gone through the differences that you can fit all of the arguments that pro-aborts use to deny personhood to the unborn. Size, level of development, environment, and dependency. So at the end of the day, there is no value-giving difference between the embryonic human being that you used to be in the womb and the adult that you are today outside the womb that would justify killing you in the womb, right? And the only differences are size, level of development, environment, and dependency. The unborn differs from us in the same ways that we differ from one another. We differ from one another according to those same categories. So when you look at your family, when you look at your friends and you ask the question, what do we have in common? We don't have size in common. We don't have level of development in common. We don't have location in common. And we don't have dependency in common. We have a human nature in common. So there's nothing you could cite to justify killing the unborn human that would not apply to many born humans as well because we all share a human nature. So abortion is never justified morally. So let's recap the case for life. Ready? 30-second soundbite. Recap the case for life. Memorize this, and you can make your bulletproof defense of the pro-life position in 30 seconds. Pro-life advocates argue, according to the science of embryology, that from the earliest stages of development, conception, the unborn child is a distinct, living, and whole human being. Philosophically, we argue that there is no essential or value-giving difference between the embryonic human being that you once were and the adult that you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Differences in size, level of development, environment, and dependency are not good reasons for saying that you had no right to life in the womb, oh, but you do now that you've been born. There's your 30-second soundbite recapping the case for life. So we have answered the question, is the unborn a human being? Yes. We've answered the question, does abortion intentionally kill? Yes, and not because we say so, but because the partisans of abortion say so. And is abortion ever justified? Medically, no, because you don't need to perform an abortion to save mom's life. Morally, no, because the unborn differs from us in the same ways that we differ from one another. 
So if you use the differences of the unborn to justify abortion, you can use the differences between born people to kill any born person. So we have adequately answered those three questions, which means that premise two stands. Yes, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being without proper justification. So the conclusion follows. Therefore, abortion is wrong. All righty. Stay buckled. We're going to do some more of this. We've now defended our pro-life case. This is your replay bulletproof episode to become a pro-life apologist. And next, we're going to get to exactly how pro-abortion advocates change the subject because they can't engage on the main thing, which we just went over. But first, if you like this show and want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of the abortion wars that equips you and your friends to defend life and be a courageous voice for the unborn, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash unaborted p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash unaborted and consider one or two lattes uh that you give up a month or that you increase a month to support this show five ten fifteen twenty dollars a month it really means a lot we want to actually begin producing more episodes a week and start doing engagement with the public with pro-life ideas that we talk about on the show and that we're equipping you to talk about on this show and film those gracious interactions to reach the masses Showing the marketplace of ideas in the public square. This is what pro-lifers believe. Can pro-choicers defend their arguments and ideas? And we believe the answer will be no. So become a patron of the show, patreon.com slash unaborted, and help us reach more people. We really appreciate it. We'll be right back with a whole lot more. Welcome back to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. So this is a timeless topical episode for you, okay? Please share this with a friend. Challenge a pro-choice friend in your life to listen to this and then have a conversation about it. Use it as a conversation sparker because too often, those who advocate for a choice have never been exposed to pro-life ideas and pro-life thinking, at least not in any meaningful way. So we've gone back to basics. We reviewed what those pro-life ideas and the pro-life case is. Now, how do pro-abortion advocates change the subject? We presented them with the main thing. Is the unborn a human? And do you believe in human equality? Is it wrong to kill innocent human beings without proper justification? They now change the subject. We're going to go over three primary ways. And I think almost all of your interactions with those who advocate for abortion and conversations on abortion will fit into one of these three subject topic changing strategies. That's why I think this episode is so valuable for you. You can always go back to this and listen on how to defend your pro-life position. So what's the first primary way that pro-abortion advocates change the subject? They resort to accusations, ad hominem attacks about pro-lifers. I'm going to give you the most common one, and you're probably hearing this all the time now. It's become very popular in the last several years. And unfortunately, a lot of self-identified nominal pro-lifers or Christians have jumped on this bandwagon. What's the bandwagon? What's the accusation? That pro-lifers are just pro-birth. They don't do anything about the child after it's born. If they were really pro-life, they'd, they'd want to prevent racism and homophobia and hunger and poverty. They'd want to support people of color against p- police brutality. They'd want a living wage for all people and universal health care for their children, right? So they take the pro-life position, the main thing, that argument. It's wrong to intentionally kill innocent humans. Abortion intentionally kills innocent humans without proper justification. Therefore, abortion is wrong. And they go, yeah, really? What are you doing about racism? What are you doing about homophobia? What are you doing about poverty? They change the subject from our argument as to why abortion is wrong and why all people should be pro-life to lump in 
a whole bevy of social and political and moral issues and then accuse pro-lifers of being inconsistent because I don't see you fighting all of those other injustices throughout the week. What are you really doing? Your pro-life label is just a sham, right? And you probably get this all the time. That's the accusation. Now, let's start with the let's start by so supposing that this accusation is correct. Suppose that that accusation from individuals, sometimes pro-life, but often not, is correct. Does that in any way refute the pro-life argument? No, it doesn't at all. It just changes the subject. All that is required to truly be pro-life is to speak and act as if abortion is wrong. To treat abortion like it actually does kill innocent human beings without proper justification. This accusation twists the pro-life label to mean quality of life for those outside the womb instead of protection of life for those still in the womb. <laughs> so then pro-abortion advocates can turn around and attack pro-lifers as hypocrites for not exhausting their scarce resources fighting every injustice imaginable. You see, that's the move. That's the move. It's to avoid the main thing, change the topic, and create an accusation, an ad hominem attack against pro-lifers by suggesting that they really don't care about babies. They don't do anything about those babies after they're born. And actually, if you were pro-life, you'd be pro-life for all life, which means that you would adopt every leftist social justice issue that I care about. Ridiculous. Pro-life means anti-abortion. Pro-life means that you're opposed to intentionally killing innocent human beings in the womb through abortion. Because it's always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. You can focus on that, still be opposed to a whole bevy of other injustices, but spend the vast majority of your time focusing on ending abortion. Let's put this accusation in any other thought experiment or in any other justice issue. For example, can you imagine accusing the international justice mission who fights against sex trafficking and rescues girls from the trade and exposes traffickers? Can you imagine accusing the international justice mission of saying if they were really anti-sex trafficking, they would be speaking out against fighting abortion and poverty and police brutality and helping poor women who feel pressured into sex trafficking to have access to universal health care. <laughs> you IJM frickers, you're not really anti-sex trafficking. Can you imagine accusing the people who are taking small salaries to rescue women from sex trafficking that, that they're not really anti-sex trafficking? What a disgusting accusation. What about accusing the American Cancer Society of saying, if you were really against disease, you would be fighting to end lupus and Crohn's disease and diabetes and heart disease. Uh, what are you talking about? It's called the American Cancer Society. Isn't it good to have an organization or a movement that focuses all of their time, resources, talent, and funds to solving one atrocity, one illness, one injustice? Of course. Of course that's a good thing. Why? Because they're more effective if they have a singular focus on solving one thing. It's only the pro-life movement whose singular focus is to end the greatest injustice in human history – that has taken the lives of over 61 million little humans in America alone since 1973 that gets accused of just being pro-birth and their pro-life label is a sham because they're not fighting um, sex trafficking on Tuesday, equal pay on Wednesday, racism on Thursday, police brutality on Friday, and uh, AIDS on Saturday. It's ridiculous. It's a stupid ad hominem attack that's used to discredit pro-lifers because they can't engage on the main thing which is, is the unborn a human? And do you believe that all humans have a right to life? Now, you can point out that this accusation is wrong, however, and it's beside the point without proving that it's wrong. You can point out that, that, that their accusation is beside the point 
because I offered you a syllogism as to why abortion is wrong. If you believe abortion is okay, then attack my argument. Don't accuse me of your perception that I'm not consistent somehow. So you can point out that this accusation is wrong and it's beside the point. But even if it's correct, it doesn't refute the pro-life case. But we can refute this disgusting accusation. And we'll just look at some brief evidence for this. According to Philanthropy Roundtable, religious conservatives are very generous. They found that people living in states that are more rural, conservative, religious, and moderate in income are our most generous givers. And we've known this for different studies. Red states that are more conservative are vastly more generous with their funds to charities, nonprofits, etc., than big blue states, than rich Democrats. And that's been true for a long time. And conservatives, right, people in rural areas, religious people, tend to be those who are pro-life. So it's a disgusting accusation that's not even true. Pro-life pregnancy centers, by the way, outnumber abortion clinics by large margins, almost three to one, according to some studies. They provide moms abortion alternatives, parenting classes, baby clothes, oftentimes financial assistance and housing. Clearly, they're not just pro-birth. They're obviously caring for the child after the womb, too. But even if they weren't, that doesn't make them inconsistent. If I rescue a child from a burning house and then the child uh, is recovering in the hospital and I'm recovering from burns that I sustained while rescuing that child and then I go on with my life, I go back to my job, I go back to supporting my family, how ridiculous would it be for someone to accuse me of not paying for that child's education afterwards, of not ensuring that they weren't getting involved in drugs, of not ensuring that uh, that they got a job or if they were black that they had affirmative action opportunity. What? Shut up, dude. You're, you're a partisan hack using your perceived sense of pro-lifers to discredit us, discredit us in the public square. Obviously, it's good that I saved a child from a burning building and that act was not was not uh, somehow meaningless just because I didn't go on to continue making sure that they had access to uh, healthcare and education. It's a good thing I saved their lives. It's a good thing when pro-lifers save the lives of unborn babies who are the target of abortion by the abortion industry and often their own parents, even if we didn't do anything about their lives after they were born. But we do. Research by the Public Discourse found that 2,300 pregnancy resource centers in America serve 1.9 million women and their children every year. But unlike Planned Parenthood, they can't count on government money. They rely on donations by generous pro-lifers and people of faith, right? So the accusation is unfounded. My friend and colleague Mark Newman sums this up incredibly well. He says, individuals and organizations that make it their exclusive mission to save these human beings from a culture hell-bent on butchering them have nothing to apologize for. They don't need additional causes. They need additional support. That's exactly right. The pro-life movement is underfunded and understaffed, and we're focusing on solving the greatest human rights violation in human history. We will not be more effective or somehow consistent if we fight every other perceived justice issue every day of the week. We'll be most effective by focusing on ending abortion. So this is the first way pro-abortion advocates change the subject away from the main thing by making accusations against pro-lifers that really, if you're pro-life, actually, 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 if you really think about it, you need to fight every issue that I perceive as an injustice, which often are leftist justice issues that are, in fact, not founded on justice principles. What's the second way that they seek to change the question, right? This is how you'll be prepared with your mental and intellectual scaffolding to engage on basically any debate or conversation on abortion. The second way they change the subject from the main thing is they simply 
assume that the unborn is not human. They just beg, it's called begging the question. When you assume the very thing that you need to prove, they just assume that the unborn is not human. But that ignores the case you offered that the unborn is fully human and therefore equal in value because the science is clear the unborn is a human being. They will use arguments, right? They will offer arguments in support of the pro-choice position and wrapped up in that argument will be an assumption that the unborn is not human. But they offer no, offer no evidence that the unborn is not human, right? Here's an example of begging the question. I ask you, hey, hey, uh, so did you stop beating your brother yet? Did you? Did you stop beating him? Now, if you answer yes, it means that you used to beat him. If you answer no, it means you're still beating him. Either way you answer, you're saying you beat your child. So I've assumed that you beat your, I'm sorry, I assumed you beat your brother, but I'm trying to prove that you beat your brother. So I've assumed the very thing I need to prove. That's what most pro-abortion arguments do within the course of their rhetoric. What are some examples of this? They tell us anti-choicers don't trust women. <laughs> They're just against abortion because they don't trust women to make their own choices about their bodies and lives. Okay, question. If parents want to beat or kill their toddlers in the privacy of their own bedrooms, should we trust them to make their own personal choices? Everyone says no. And the pro-choicer goes, that's different. Toddlers are humans. Oh, so the humanity that you're granting to the toddler in my question, you're denying that humanity to the unborn child in your argument that anti-choicers don't trust women. So you have assumed the unborn is not human without proving it. Okay, more, more examples. They say anti-choicers want to force poor women to bring another child into this world. Those stupid pro-life bigots, they're just forcing families to suffer more income strife and poverty by forcing them to have another child. Question, when human beings get expensive, can we kill them? If your toddler's just getting too expensive to feed, can you kill him? Oh, no, pro-lifer, what a stupid question. You can't do that. That's a human. Exactly. Exactly. The humanity that you're granting to the toddler in my question, you're denying to the unborn child in your argument for abortion. You beg the question. You've assumed the unborn is not human. You haven't proved it. Keep the main thing the main thing. I offered an argument from the science of embryology that the unborn is human. You need to refute that, right? More examples. They say abortion is needed to prevent child abuse. Wow. So kill babies now so they're not abused later. Okay, question. Can we kill two-year-olds to prevent the abuse of five-year-olds? Maybe they'll get abused at five, but they're not at two, but they might at five. So let's kill them now at two. No, you can't do that. Those are humans. Exactly. They're humans. Are the unborn human? Answer the question. More examples. Abortion allows women freedom to pursue their careers. Right? It's freeing. It's freeing them from the reproductive instinct of their oppressive biology so that they can be as successful as men in the workplace and not have to be accidentally burdened by a child that they probably created consensually. Oh, I can't have that. They need equality in the workplace, which means the right to kill unborn children. Very well. Can we kill toddlers who interfere with mother's education or career? No, you can't do that. They're humans, right? It's the same game. You see what I mean? They assume the unborn is not human. One more, one more here or two more. They say laws against abortion impose morality. Pro-life, Christian, Catholic, stop imposing your morality on women who want abortions. Would you say the same thing about laws against killing toddlers? Or is it good that we impose that kind of morality, preventing parents from killing their toddlers? That's different, Seth. The toddlers are humans. You can't kill toddlers. Is the unborn a human? from the moment of conception. If they are, they have equal rights. Answer the main thing. Last example, they say abortion is needed to prevent disabled children, right? We talked about this last week. The, the abortion is modern day eugenics. And it's pitched now as a compassionate option for parents who are selfish and don't want to raise disabled children 
So they convince themselves that they're aborting their child for compassionate reasons, sparing them the difficulties of their disability, despite the fact that Down syndrome children and disabled children report some of the highest levels of happiness of their life. But they're slaughtering them in the womb so that they can spare them a perceived difficult future. So abortion is needed to prevent disabled children. Since when are damaged humans non-humans? Is it okay to kill handicapped two-year-olds, huh? Is it okay to slit the throat of your trisomy 18 baby after they're born if you didn't know they had trisomy 18 in the womb? Oh, no. Oh, no. Because they're humans? Exactly. The science of embryology teaches us that from the moment of conception, the unborn child is a human being. That's the main thing. But they won't engage on the main thing because they can't engage on the main thing. Because <laughs> otherwise, it compromises their euphemistic worldview and agenda that suggests that abortion is just reproductive health care. Okay, so those are the first two ways that they change the subject. Either by saying that we're just pro-birth and that pro-life means fighting every perceived leftist justice cause. Or by assuming the unborn is not Human and virtually every argument for abortion assumes the unborn is not human, right? So here is your quick little strategy to take pro-abortion arguments and feed them through the abortion BS filter. That's what I'll call it, the abortion BS filter. You can take these arguments, feed them through that BS filter, and it will reveal whether they've assumed the unborn child is not human, okay? And the tactic that you'll use is called trot out the toddler. Trot out the toddler. Take the pro-choice argument. We just did this. Replace it with the with a toddler instead of an unborn child and repeat the question back to the pro-choicer the same environment right so oh you know women need abortion because we can't force poor women to have more children and it might be too expensive to raise another child can we kill toddlers when they get expensive right so you repeat the question back to them but replace the unborn child with a toddler it's called trot out the toddler it's an abortion bs filter that you can throw pro-abortion arguments into to, to, uh, to shed it of all of its euphemistic BS and expose the assumption that they're assuming unborn children are not human beings. Okay, third way and final way that pro-abortion advocates shift the topic away from the main thing and change the subject because they can't engage on the main thing. They confuse, ready? They confuse functioning as a human with being a human. They have a perception of what a human being is, and it comes with certain functions. So they look at the unborn and say, well, the unborn is lacking in those functions. So they're not a person or they're not a human or they don't have a right to life. The number one example of this is the idea of like self-awareness or desires. This will be the number one argument you'll hear from woke progressives on college campuses. The unborn is not a person and doesn't have a right to life, so it's just a mother's right because the unborn child is not even self-aware. Come on, pro-lifer. Come on. Don't be dumb. You think that that thing in the womb that doesn't even know it exists and it doesn't have any desires to go on living, doesn't have any immediately exercisable desires, that's a person with rights equal to a toddler? Man, man you are a stupid pro-lifer. That's the argument, right? That the embryo is not self-aware and has no immediately exercisable desires. Therefore, it's not a human person with rights. few things we need to point out here. This is called reductio ad absurdum. It's when you, you take your opponent's argument and you just, you just take it to its logical conclusion. And you say, is that really where you want to go? You want to go down that path? <laughs> okay. It's called reductio ad absurdum. Here we go. If that argument is correct, that the, we can kill the baby because it, it's not self-aware and it doesn't have any desires – then the first question we have to ask them is why does self-awareness or having desires matter in the first place? Just like pro-aborts assume that the unborn is not a human being, they also assume that certain functions are value-giving in and of themselves. They just assume that self-awareness and immediately exercisable desires 
give you value. But why should we assume that? Why should we accept the suggestion that you only have value or rights if you are self-aware or have desires? They just assume it. They don't explain why those traits are value giving in the first place. All right. That's the first problem. The second is that this objection proves too much. Or the, the legal saying is that it cuts both ways. It proves too much. Because if you are only a person with a right to life, such that others should respect that right to life, if you have self-awareness or desires that are immediately exercisable, then that would disqualify newborns who lack self-awareness and desires. Newborn children are not self-aware of themselves. We know this from studies. It takes months and months before the child is aware of themselves as an individual entity, right? As a baby, they, they, when they look at, the, at themselves in the mirror, they, they don't know that they're looking at them. They don't know, oh, that's me. I'm a baby. <laughs> so if we can kill human beings and they don't have a right to life because they don't have self-awareness or they don't have immediately exercisable desires, Guess what, pro-abort? You just justified infanticide. It proves too much. It cuts both ways. This also results in savage inequality to suggest that personhood and a right to life are only founded in self-awareness and desires. Because why? Self-awareness comes in varying degrees. Not everyone is equally self-aware. Not everyone has an equal amount or degree of desires. Desires and self-awareness come in varying degrees. No one shares those things equally. So if self-awareness or having desires, grounds our value and right to life as persons, then those with more of those characteristics have more value and hence a greater right to life than those with less. So you can throw human equality out the window. I can kill you if you're sleeping. I can kill you if you're in a coma. I can kill you if you're distraught from a romantic breakup and so you have no desire to go on living and I kill you because I haven't violated your desires. That's the argument of the pro-choice movement here. You only have value and a right to life if you have self-awareness and desires. What if you've been indoctrinated in, in a cult to not want to live and to commit suicide? If I kill you, I haven't violated your right to life because I haven't violated your desires, right? Nobody agrees with that. So see, reductio ad absurdum. Take that suggestion that human life and personhood and a right to life are based on self-awareness and desires and just take it to its intellectual conclusion. And this is where it leads. It results in savage inequality. Frank Beckwith, uh, a uh, philosopher, Christian apologist, legal scholar, he, he helps us understand why immediately exercisable desires can't be the standard for humanity or human value, okay? He, he has this thought experiment in his book, Defending Life. He says, suppose a scientist surgically alters the brain of a developing fetus in the womb so he never desires anything. He's born and he, 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 his ability to desire is gone. Then at age five, the child is killed so his body parts can be used to treat illnesses of others. If the child had no desires when he was killed, was he not wronged? And everyone's sort of moral reflex is to say, of course, that was still wrong. Well, if it was wrong, then desires can't be the grounding of a right to life and personhood. The only way to maintain human equality is to argue that although humans differ immensely in terms of characteristics and functions, they share a common human nature. And when did that common human nature begin? At the moment of conception. That's what the science teaches. That's the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing and force your pro-abortion opponents or friends to answer those questions. So this is the three ways they change the subject. They accuse us of just being pro-birth and not uh, somehow fighting every injustice every day of the week. They beg the question by assuming the unborn is not human within the course of their rhetoric. And you can throw those arguments through, through the abortion BS filter. And they confuse functioning as a human with being a human. 
This tactics will enable you to narrate the debate, right, and stay in the driver's seat of the conversation. Stick to the pro-life case and syllogism, and you can illustrate that the case and points your critic presented are either irrelevant to your case, our pro-life syllogism, or fail to refute our argument. The last point I want to make is that abortion fits into the larger issue of basic human equality. Who counts as one of us, right? Who counts as a part of the human family? And are all members of the human family equal in dignity, worth, and value? Do we all have that natural right to life? You are the equality advocate. You are advocating for the basic right to life and value of all human beings, born or unborn. Abortion is a moral wrong because it is a choice for the death of an innocent baby, a human being who differs from us in the same ways that we differ from one another, yet is still a distinct living and whole human being with equal rights. The pro-life position is the human equality position. The pro-life advocate is the human equality advocate. The pro-abortion advocate is the enemy of human equality, the opponent of human equality. They believe that some humans that we know are humans don't get human rights. If the pro-abortion advocate wants to succeed in making a case that abortion is a moral right, they must either disprove the science and show that the unborn is actually not a human being from the moment of conception. Or they must show why large and developed born human beings have a right to life, while small and dependent unborn human beings do not. However, they must do this without accidentally justifying the killing of born people at the same time. Because whatever characteristics you use to, to deprive the unborn child of that basic equal right to life, I'll show you a born person that could adequately be killed as well by lacking the same characteristic that you say the unborn child lacks when you make an argument for their dismemberment. So that's what the pro-abortion advocate or your friend in a conversation on abortion must do. Disprove the science that the unborn is not a human or show why large and developed born human beings have rights while small and dependent ones do not. And you can tell your friend this. If you can do this, if you can prove one or both of these things, I will surrender my position and adopt the pro-choice position. You can say that confidently because we know that the pro-life position is the position of human equality and it coincides with reality. Because as I'm fond of saying, reality has an interesting tendency of reasserting itself in our lives and reality tends to be self-evident for those who are committed to the pursuit of truth above all else. Share this episode with a friend, please. Share this with a pro-life friend. Share this with your kids. Share this with your youth group. Share this with a pro-choice friend and have some meaningful conversations on these most basic of all natural rights and this debate that has been raging for nearly 50 years and has taken the lives of over 61 million little humans in the womb. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, if you want to give this show a rating and review, that would really help. Head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Give the show a rating and review. It really helps. We want to reach more people. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to SethGruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby babyboyer.com for bookings, for my newsletter, for my speaking schedule, and to learn more. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted.